for whatever reason, you've come back to hear us pick up our little dance with Jerry Walls as he's giving us his enlightened philosophical analysis of Calvinism. And we got to do two things today. First of all, we've got to distinguish between what we talked about as the free agency of man, his natural liberty, and his moral will. And then second, we got to address this sometimes subtle little attack that he makes, Walls does, against Calvinism, that we are left with an unanswerable problem of evil that somehow some other views don't have to deal with. So we're going to talk about that, free agency and man's moral nature and the problem of evil today on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Thanks again, Sinners and Saints, Adam Kalustian, Moses Jambazian, and John Sautel. We're pastors in local United Reformed churches, and we are continuing to plow our way through the book, Why I Am Not a Calvinist, and tell you that there are no good reasons for you not to be a Calvinist if you want to just uh, submit to the Scripture's uh, basic teachings about God and the way that He controls uh, His world, and also the salvation of His people. But uh, we left off last time, and I wanted to get back into this just so we're not unclear. We left off last time sort of clarifying the Bible's basic teaching about the nature of human freedom. And the first thing that we said was that man has always been and will always be a free agent. He is always able to do that which he wants to do, and he's responsible for his choices. And at the same time, we also said the Scripture is very clear that God ordains Every thought, every word, every action that happens in the world, and he has a good reason for doing it, and that in no way compromises man's free agency. Now, we also speak, and this, was, this distinction was not made clear in Walls' work, and unfortunately this distinction is not always made clear when Reformed people talk about this issue, and that is a cause for confusion. We make a, a distinction of sorts between talking about man's natural liberty and his free agency and the exercise of that agency in his moral will or his moral nature. We say that mankind, after the fall of our first father Adam, has become totally depraved, and we start to use words like unable to do that which is good. Now, when we say unable... We don't mean that in the free agent sense. As a man, his composition is such that he will always be able to do right or wrong and be responsible for those choices. The problem is, when Adam sinned, he plunged himself and all of his descendants into the condition of total depravity, whereby he will never desire to do that which is good and pleasing in the sight of God unless God works to regenerate his will. And I think this is important to keep in mind because when you're reading Walls critiquing different confessional statements or some Reformed authors who we really would agree with the way that they worded it, when he critiques them, he'll attack words like unable or can't do good, can do good. But see, he's not assuming the distinction that, say, the Westminster divines or some of the Reformed writers are assuming or the one that we're assuming, which is that 
when we speak of man being unable, we're talking about his spiritual or moral nature. But we can talk more about this, I guess, when we come back to the problem of evil, maybe. Yeah, it's going to fit well with that because what we're going to introduce right now as we come to chapter 4 is the issue of sovereignty. We dealt with the question of the will and the basic categories, philosophical categories that are somewhat helpful in uh, being able to discuss intelligently and clearly what we mean about the nature of uh, human freedom or freedom of choice. Now what happens is we come to this issue. We can bring in sovereignty. How does sovereignty relate to a man's free choices? And particularly what we want to get into is how does sovereignty and free choice relate to the broader question of evil? Now, he begins the section by basically affirming that everyone, all branches of Christianity, all forms of Christians, believe in the concept of the sovereignty of God. Now, I said that exactly how I wanted to say it, believe in the concept, because he makes a distinction uh, throughout this chapter that you have the Calvinistic concept, which is that God basically governs everything and is sovereign over all things and decrees all things and effectually causes everything to come to pass. And then there's another category of sovereignty, which is, well, uh, God could just create a world in which he doesn't choose to intervene at all, basically, and that's sovereignty. And one of the points we're going to bring up here is that's a nonsensical idea. That's a nonsensical way of talking about sovereignty. We define the sovereignty of God according to how the Scripture does. And as you study Scripture, I mean, I, I, I don't know how possibly you could ever get around this verse. Ephesians 1, uh, 11, when it says that having been predestined, according to his purpose, who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. You know, it's just a lame cop-out to say things like, well, God in his sovereignty created a world in which he was not sovereign according to how the Calvinists define it. This kind of hoop-jumping and grasping at straws to try and find some way to maintain an orthodox category but not hold, like the orthodox definition of the word, is just silly. It says two very important things, that God has predestined whatever is going to come to pass, and then he effectually works that decree out so it sovereignly comes to pass. So before we get—we just say that at the beginning here. Now, we're going to lay out basically his three approaches to this issue. First of all, you have the Calvinistic approach to the issue of the sovereignty of God, particularly as it relates— to the decreeing of human events, and that's why God knows things. So let's deal with the Calvinistic view. Basically, how he summarizes it is this, is that the reason why God knows everything that comes to pass is because his knowledge of future events is contingent upon his sovereign foreordination. In other words, foreknowledge is not based upon what he sees could happen under possible circumstances. He certainly and infallibly knows whatever will come to pass because he has logically, prior to that, foreordained whatever will come to pass. Therefore, it is certain to occur. Now, it's important that we get that clear in our mind. He goes to the Westminster Confession, and he shows that this is... Uh, this kind of an idea, this summary, is well-rooted ra- well in the confessional reform tradition. That's option number one. Then option number two is the Molinist account of how God uh, foreknows and decrees what should come to pass. The Molinist view is basically this, that God from all of eternity knows all contingencies and possibilities numbered in the gazillion, billions, or trillions of 
possible worlds and possible people that were created and possible thoughts, words, and actions that they might take in all possible situations in every possibly conceivable universe or universes that you could ever conceive or think of to the extent of the infinite knowledge of God. And then he decided to create the particular specific world in which would happen what he wanted to happen out of all the possibilities that he knew about. His foreknowledge does not affect what actually happens in our world because he ordained it specifically, but he just kind of spun something out of the many possibilities that he happened to know because of his infinite wisdom. Yeah. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, the key here, in, in contrasting over it against Calvinism, is that where we said Calvinism says God foreknows because he foreordained logically prior to the foreknowing. Molinism says that the foreknowledge of the event comes first, then the decree follows after, rendering the event certain to happen. So that's Molinism. Then he presents what he conceives of as the only other option. Now, that's debatable in and of itself, but that's the only option he gives you here. And that is open theism. Now, many of you may not have heard of such a thing as open theism. He describes it. Now, this is his own description of it. Is that open theists are a bunch of evangelicals who are Bible-believing, but who are... are aren't they all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But who are sick and tired of secular philosophy uh, corrupting... The biblical doctrine of God. I, I'm taking some license there in the way I describe it. Basically, he says this, is that the traditional views of God have been corrupted by categories taken over from Greek philosophy. So they're purging that. They're doing us all a wonderful favor by purging our concepts of God uh, of these uh, philosophies and these philosophical concepts. And we're just going straight back to the Bible. So everything you hear with open theism, it's, it's just all right out of the Bible. So that will help you understand their view of the sovereignty of God. Now, what do they believe about the sovereignty of God? Well, basically this. God created a world in which he has zero, no knowledge at all of what anyone will do at any moment. That's sovereignty. Be clear now. Be very clear about what open theism teaches that God does not know the future actions of men. Not in one fact, single action. Say, well, of course he can't know the future actions of men because there is no such thing as the future actions of men until they actually occur, thoughts, words, or deeds. So he can't know any of it. That's what open theism teaches. And then they go on. You'll love this. Note that God is no less sovereign in a world where he chooses to grant his creatures libertarian freedom than he is in a world where he determines everything. Sovereignty cannot simply be equated with meticulous control. Well, listen, Walls, that's what sovereignty has meant in the history of Orthodox Christianity. This view of open theism goes even beyond the, the errant teachings of Arminianism and w makes God into a little boy who is just waiting to see what will happen yeah, but in see, the world that he created. That's just because you were nourished intellectually on uh, the, the doctrines of Greek philosophy. That's why you're struggling with this. If what you would grasp is that God is not only sovereign, uh, but he's not really omniscient either. Well, 
what he wants to say is, yeah, God's omniscient. He knows everything he knows, that can be known. He, he, no, not really. He, he knows things that are logically possible to know. But, and here's another sleight of hand trick that he uses. He says, but when you stop and think about it, this view of omniscience is really not so unorthodox after all because we believe in omnipotence, right? That God can do anything except for he can't do anything that violates his nature or is logically contradictory. In other words, God can't make square circles. So, see, if God could limit himself in his omnipotence, well, what's wrong by arguing by extension or by way of analogy that, of course, when it comes to omniscience, God doesn't have to know everything either. Now, notice what he just did there. In the concept of omnipotence, God himself is the limiting factor. He will not deny himself. He will not contradict himself. He will not do something that violates his nature. He is the limiting, he is the limitation of his omnipotence. When it comes to omniscience, however, what is the limitation of his knowledge? Not himself, but man. In other words, man has the opportunity to put God over a barrel and twist him into doing, or twist his arm into doing, whatever he wants to do. And, and this is one of the, the real questions, and I guess we're biasing the discussion at this point. We're just supposed to lay out what they believe. But basically saying is omniscience boils down to God only knowing things that are logically possible, but God has no shred of knowledge about any human event. And so he has to be, he is reduced now to a very keen observer of human behavior. Yeah, who, in their view, reserves the right to intervene at certain points when he thinks out of his wisdom, if he doesn't, you know, do something, something's not going to turn out how he wants. So he's, an, he's able to do that. I mean, you just should know, though, whatever positive spin Walls or anybody else who's advocating open theism wants to say about it, it denies in any orthodox historic sense of the world the foreknowledge of God. You should know that. I mean, this, this is heresy. Well, also the omnipotence of God, because I, I can't think of any major strand of teaching within the history of the church that would so utterly and completely deny uh, the sovereignty of God over human affairs. Sure, people have wrangled over how to put it in the best way, and we believe clearly that Calvinism has it correct, as it stands on the shoulders of people like Augustine and the early church. But look at this. They're saying that he is not omnipotent, basically. They've reduced God's role in the universe to somebody who uses psychological manipulation to coerce people into doing what he wants them to do, but he cannot force them to do anything. He cannot decree anything. He cannot cause anything. Okay, so, you know, here he goes laying out the options again. You've got Calvinist option, he says. You've got the... Molinist option, and you've got the open theist option. Uh, we probably agree with some of his critiques about Molinism. Look, I guess in evaluation of these options, we would just say the reason that we're Calvinists is, again, because we believe the Scripture very clearly teaches the principles of Calvinism relating to the nature of human freedom and relating to the nature of God's control that we already described. Uh, Molinism makes God very passive, very inactive, and almost, it reminds me of deism in some senses, but uh, maybe with a little more interest in the world than deism would offer. This open theism is heresy and a flat contradiction to many of the passages in Scripture. We didn't get into this, really, uh, answering his the promotion of open theism from the Scripture. I don't know. We're going to take time to do that. Maybe that's for another show. The point that stands out to me in all of this is that if you deny the basic clear teachings of Calvinism, 
and you're not content to be left with the mysterious paradox of God's sovereign control and man's responsibility, then you will continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the swimming pool until you drown, until you start saying things like, oh, God doesn't know the future because he can't know it. It's not logically possible. I mean, what's next? Well, and you might, so you would ask yourself at this point, well, what in the world would cause somebody to go so far adrift of the whole Christian tradition? It's a good question to ask. And I, I really believe that one of the principal driving concerns behind this way of uh, describing God's sovereignty is the problem of evil. What he's trying to do is alleviate the tension that seems to be there. God is sovereign, and evil's in the world. How do we account for God's relationship to that? And he critiques both Calvinism and Molinism on these points, saying they don't have a good answer. Only open theism does, because God doesn't cause anything to happen. Therefore, he can't be responsible. Each of the views, I'll quote him here, each of the views presented, talking about Calvinism, Molinism, and open theism, has its strengths and difficulties. God's sovereignty and providential control of our world are surely matters that exceed our full understanding, so it's inevitable that we must allow for some mystery regardless of which view we take. It's our judgment, however, that the Calvinist account poses particularly severe difficulties, especially with respect to the problem of evil, and this is one preliminary but significant reason not to be a Calvinist. You see, the problem of evil is gnawing at a lot of people and especially gnawing at a lot of people when they consider Calvinism. How can God be sovereign and there be evil in the world? Or just and be sovereign and there be evil in the world. I think that's the jarring emotional concept here is that we could all say that he's sovereign, but how could he be just and good? And if, good, right. If it's there. And I mean, that's the issue that we have to grapple with. And when I think one of the one of the best biblical illustrations of this, or one we can surely get our hands on, uh, and you can, you can get your hands on with us, is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's the tale of the story of Joseph. And, and you know all the shenanigans that went on there, right? The sibling rivalry, the, the jealousy, which eventually led to the brothers um, selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Now, what you have at the end of the story is Joseph basically giving his theological interpretation of what happened. Verse 20 says, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So there's your issue. You, and here it's set up for us perfectly to work on. You meant it for evil, so we're all agreeing that what happened to Joseph was evil. And yet on the other side of it here, he's saying God was in it too, but God he had another purpose. God meant it for good. And what is the it? The it is all the thoughts and the words and the actions and the consequences of all those thoughts, words, and actions of all the brothers. Now, the key here, which system, which has been laid out, Calvinism, Molinism or open theism best accounts for the relationship of these things here. That evil is present, man is responsible for it, yet God is sovereign in and through it all and overrules it and handles it the best. Which, which, for a good purpose, yeah, that's the key. Which, which one handles it well? Now, he says, well, Calvinism can't answer this one at all. It has no good answer here. It appears like it, but then it doesn't because it needs a whole bunch of other supporting facts. But just think about it. Uh, think about it, first of all, from the Molinist account. Could, could a Molinist view make this verse make sense? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Well, 
the Molinist view, remember, requires that God doesn't decree anything till he already foreknows what decision you'll make. So I don't have any idea how Molinism helps us here. I mean, maybe it's good. It would be They would interpret it as God as being good in the sense that it was the best option because that's what he wanted. I mean, I, I it's hard, hard to understand to be, how God meant it for good when he's just coattailing on the actions of individuals. They did the evil. The result of it, it though, was the best. It was the not, best of all the possible evils but, but that here, he thought of. I here's guess. Here's the thing: the verse is saying that that God was related to the evil that occurred to Joseph. It wasn't just his brothers. The end result is that God worked that evil out. For good, not only for Joseph, yeah, God meant not only for it. his brothers, but basically that portion of the known world at that time. God meant it. Yeah, yeah he God. had a reason. He was active there. So Molinism doesn't really fit. Now, the other one you'd bring up is open theism, and he tries to argue for open theism. But remember, let's go back. What is open theism? It's saying God doesn't know future events, and uh, God does not coerce the will. God does not cause... Um, men to act as they do. Okay, so we take those two tenets, applying to the story. How is it that God could bring this good out of this evil with those theological assumptions, remembering now God is not sovereign over the events that happen? The impression that I get is that somebody from the open theist camp would say, well, God intervened at certain points. You know, in order for God to bring about his purposes, he doesn't have to, you know, control every thought, word, and action of everybody at all points along the history of this, you know, things that happened to Joseph. I think their idea is that he kind of came in when he saw what was happening at different points in his wisdom, and he tweaked a little bit here and tweaked a little bit there. But remember, the heart of their system is that God does not affect the decision or the choice or cause it of any man at all. You would need, in order for this to work out so that God ends up intending it and accomplishing his good in it, it seems to me what you need is God somewhere affecting and causing somebody to make a decision that ends up fitting uh, with his purpose. Well, on top of which, I mean, how can God, if he doesn't know the future, even know what to do? if he doesn't know what the outcome of certain activities are. I guess they would argue that based on his past experience and seeing how when somebody acts a certain way, this is the consequence, he could deduce that it's probably going to happen that way again, so I probably better do something in this case. But do you understand like this it's image so of God that you get? Yeah. It's so, I, I don't know, it is so weak and paltry. It, it makes God into someone who's completely reactive this is not at all the posture of God that you find in the Scripture. And, again, it's grasping at any possible thing to alleviate God from the burden of being guilty for doing that which is evil, which comes back to our point. I mean, how does a Calvinist just, you know, respond to the problem of evil? Because, to be honest with you, this is what it comes down to. I've talked with people who have said, I find your arguments for Calvinism and your Scripture proofs that God is in sovereign control of all this very convincing, but I just can't accept it because it makes God evil. And what do we do with that? Well, the answer to that question is, first of all, we can't ultimately solve that problem. But second of all, God has a good reason 
For the bad things which he plans and makes to happen through the evil intentions of his creatures for a good reason. He has a good reason for all of that. We don't know what it is. Certainly in his power and wisdom, he could have done it differently, but he has decided that there is a good reason for him to do the things the way that he has done. And we have to be left alone with that. Now, I should point out that some people will say, if you believe that, then you're compromising the whole goodness and the justice of God. And as we've said before when we've argued against atheists, no, we're not. Because without God, we have no standard of good or evil. And also you should know that these other concepts of God's control do not answer the problem of evil anyway. Think of Arminianism. If God knew, they believe in exhaustive foreknowledge of God. If God knew 50 years before that there was going to be sin committed and he had the full power not to create the person 50 years prior, and he did, then he is in some sense responsible for that evil. Well, the same thing is true with open theism. As much as they want to deny that God has any future knowledge of any events, he's still subject to... He's, the problem of evil is not alleviated on their construction either because then why did God create a universe in which things, evil things can happen to people? And, and he has really no control over it, only just sort of a, a moral suasion or some sort of psychological ability to, to manipulate people a little bit to do what he coerced them into doing but not cause them to do what's right. Couldn't an expression of his goodness have been that he gave them freedom in a sense that would never allow them to do evil. See, no matter what, that's open theism is subject to that critique too. No matter what theory you come up with, if God is good and you want to defend his goodness, you're going to have this, you don't have to call it a problem of evil, you can call it a paradox of the existence of evil or whatever you want to call it. But Calvinism is no more open to the critique of the so-called problem of evil than any of these other views are. That's our point. Okay, so we take a breath here, we pause, and what we find is that Walls is unwilling to live with the paradox that the Scripture teaches, that God is in sovereign control of every detail of everything that ever happened. He knows it ahead of time because he foreordains it to happen that way, and he has a good reason for everything that happens, and at the same time, Man is free and responsible for the actions that he commits. We haven't gotten into how this all relates to the fallen nature and its bondage to sin and how God has to choose us to be made alive in Christ, but that is definitely for another time. We thank you for hanging in with us here on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.